Well, it's good to be back with you, brothers and sisters, today. Let's uh, commit our time again to the Lord in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you are here among us today. Lord, you mean everything to us, and it's a delight just to be with you and with your people. Thank you, Lord, for that song that Natalie and Randy just sang. It so clearly indicates, Lord, that your strength is perfect, and we bless you for that, Lord. It's another reason why we love you so much, because you're such a strong rock. You're such a strong God. And, Lord, you delight in our weakness, because, Lord, when we're weak, then you're really able to show your strength in and through our lives. And we gladly, humbly, Lord, tell you we are weak, but we praise you that you are strong. And, Lord, we pray that you'll bless your word to us today, Lord. Lord, we pray today as we think of our country at war, Lord, that you will be with the president and his commanding staff and all the troops, Lord. We know today's been a difficult day. There's been a number of casualties, Lord, and we would just pray that you will provide comfort. We don't know the circumstances of many of those who are injured or who have been killed, Lord. We pray that they are leaning and drawing upon you, especially for those who are being held at the moment as prisoners of war, Lord. We commit them to you, and we would pray that even now, Lord, if they don't know you, this might be an opportunity where these folks, these people will receive you. And, Lord, we would just ask that uh, and that you will just guide, Lord, that your will will be done. And, Lord, we would pray um, just that we would remember that, as Dean said, Lord, you're sovereign. You are on the throne. And we pray that we will just look to you and trust you in these difficult days. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 10. You know, it wasn't that long ago, the way time flies, that we were celebrating the birth of Christ, remembering that in December. And in just a few weeks' time, we'll be reflecting again on the wonderful story, the sobering story of Christ's crucifixion, but his glorious resurrection on Easter Sunday, just in a few weeks' time. This morning, I'd like us to really to think about the question of life. In the Gospel of John, it's mentioned 36 times, this word. The other, the other New Testament book, the closest it comes on the number of occasions of mentioning the word life is 17. So this is an emphasis in the Gospel of John, the word life. And it's a significant word because how you spell the word life largely determines how you live it. And you might be looking at me today and said, well, you know what? I thought there was just one way to spell the word life. But as the message goes on this morning, I'm going to show you there's actually four ways that you can spell the word life. And I would ask you, as you hear each way that you can spell this word, just how are you living it this morning? You know, many of us have favorite passages and verses of Scripture. And probably, would anyone here today say that John chapter 10 is one of their favorites? One of their favorites. And I can't read the whole chapter due to time, but it's, it's a fantastic section of Scripture where Jesus really just declares that he is the shepherd. And he is the good shepherd. 
and in times of, of where we need comfort and we need uh, uh, someone that we can turn to, it's great to know that we've got a shepherd in our Lord Jesus Christ. And I just want to pick up where he starts to say in verse 7 that Jesus is speaking and he says, I tell you the truth. I am the gate for the sheep. All who enter, or sorry, all who ever came before me were thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. With special emphasis now in these next two verses. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. You know, what I want you to think about this morning, and this may be new to some of you this morning. I don't obviously know who all of you are. But even if you know this, this is something to share over the next few weeks, especially as we're approaching Easter and we're in such difficult days as far as the nation, that there may be opportunities where people are very open to wanting to hear about spiritual things. But this question that maybe people are starting to think about as we get closer to Easter again, it was a question back at Christmas, maybe it's back in people's mind now, is why, why did Jesus come to earth? What was that all about that the Son of God would come down from heaven to come to this place on earth? And I want to, from the scriptures today, show you that there are a number of very, very clear reasons that he states, that the New Testament writers state as to why he came. There can be no ambiguity on this subject because Jesus Christ and his disciples were very clear on it. And the first is, and just listen to this. I'll have you turning to a couple of other passages of scripture, but just listen to this one. One of the reasons that Jesus Christ came to earth as it says in verse John chapter 3, verse 8, is to destroy the works of the devil. First John chapter 3, verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. That's a very clear reason. No one can really, I think, argue what does this mean when it says in Scripture that he came to destroy the devil's work. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ could have, in whatever way he chose, he could have destroyed the devil's work with a word. A single word at that. But as we know, and if we know the gospel, as we read in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus Christ came down from heaven to this earth to suffer, to bleed, and to die. When you think of what are the devil's work, in the context of John chapter 10, Jesus is talking about a lot of false uh, Christs, false prophets who have come before him. And he describes them as a thief. But it would be true to say that when you ascribe who is the greatest thief, who is the greatest destroyer and killer, it's the devil himself. And all others, in a sense, are just following in his footsteps or what his marching orders are. And so when we think for a moment when Jesus or John the writer in 1 John 3, 8 said he came to destroy the devil's work, I believe we can take from John chapter 10 just what some of those specific works are 
that he came to do. Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal. How many of you raise up hands this morning, almost this afternoon, have ever been robbed? Raise your hands if you've ever been robbed. If you've ever been stolen from or robbed, it's something that you probably had a variety of emotions, but it's, a, it's certainly something that is humbling. You feel violated, depending what it was that was stolen. Maybe you feel angered, but you feel like you've been victimized. As many of you know, I work at the Hayward Police Department as a dispatch supervisor, and I was on the phone last week speaking to one lady, and I answered the phone, Hayward Police, and she said, can I speak to a human being? I thought, well, that's a funny thing. I, I know I sound slightly robotic, but <laughs> last I checked, you know, I'm human. I said, well, you are talking to a human being. And um, she went on to describe, you know, sadly, that she'd been the victim of a, of a theft. If you've been ever held up at gunpoint or somebody has actually robbed you, not stolen possession or a burglary or something like that, it's even more serious. And when somebody steals, like in a burglary, you feel so, you feel so um, opened because you may leave your house in the morning only to come back in the evening and someone has been in your home. They didn't announce it, but nonetheless they stole The Bible says that the devil is the thief. You think back of what a thief he is. When you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, it starts really all the way back there because he robbed Adam and Eve of their joy and their peace and their contentment that they had with God, didn't he? Everything was going wonderfully well. God had said to them, you know, there's this one tree, this one tree I don't want you to eat from. They've had perfect fellowship with him. You know, it was a perfect script. There was no sin, nothing to cause any disruption except when the thief came in. And he came to bring about discontentment by implying that God was uh, withholding something that they needed. And eventually... He tempted them to sin, and we know the sad outcome of what happened. They did, and their intimacy and their relationship and the fellowship that they had with God, their creator, was destroyed. And he is ultimately the devil responsible through a host of strategies and tactics of robbing women and men today, of knowing their purpose in life, for example, why they're here what they're all about, why they've been created. And his desire for every man and woman is today that is walking on the face of this earth is to rob them of knowing God personally. And he, he detests the fact that God could know them and that they could know God. And he doesn't want that. He's a thief. He's a robber. Something else that is true of the devil and it's in certainly implied here in this text of Scripture, John 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill. I'd like you to flip back in your uh, Bibles to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, Jesus says this of the enemy. Verse 42, 
Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and now am here. I have not come on my own, but he sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? He who belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ sure spoke words of power and of authority. No minced oaths or messages in what he's saying there. No mixed messages. He was speaking the truth. And he says about the devil that he is a murderer. The comforting thing that that you and I can take this morning is that he, the devil, is a defeated enemy. Amen? Amen? But the thing is, and if you want to use the analogy of what's taking place, many believe that eventually the people of Iraq who have suffered so under such a brutal regime, they're going to be defeated and liberated. But in the short term, there's still battles that they might win. The fighting may still go on. The devil, he's still scoring some victories. But the fate, his fate, is sealed. But his desire is to take down as many as he can until that day occurs. And I know it's our prayer that it will happen real soon. We can't wait. We can't wait for the Lord Jesus Christ to return. I can't wait to see the day that his kingdom is established here back on this earth. And he's reigning. And he's victorious. And the weapons of this world have been turned into plowshares and for farming. It's an amazing thing. And it's coming one day. But we must persevere in this short term. The Bible says in John chapter 8 that he was a murderer from the beginning. It goes right back to what he did with Adam and Eve. He brought death to Adam. And he brought it as a result because we're descendants of Adam to the human race. And something else that Jesus said of him in John chapter 8 is that he's a liar and he's a deceiver. Now, I don't know about you, but I would imagine that you detest and hate being lied to. It's one of the things that in in having kids that receives a special punishment over the years. Now they're getting older to where there's, I think, much less of that temptation in that specific area. We're moving on to new temptations in new areas. But the whole area of lying, that was something that we really, I think, enforced in our kids, that that was just something that was a no-go. We'd rather hear the truth. We'd rather hear the truth and then deal with it than to be lied to. And even in our relationships to one another, something seriously happens in the relationships, particularly with those that we love and know, when we have found out that we've been lied to. One of the songs we sing back at, at, at Fairhaven is how we love the Lord because how the devil lied to us. I was lied to, but you told the truth. And that's the thing about Jesus Christ. He tells the truth. Whereas it says of the devil, 
He's a liar. And you know, the interesting thing about him is, in the form of a lie, he will dress it up to the point to where it doesn't seem sometimes like a blatant, outright lie that we would reject, but it's disguised. And he's a deceiver. Some of us are gullible, and it's probably a good thing to admit it before the Lord. You know what? I'm gullible, Lord, and therefore I need wisdom, and I need discernment, and I can easily be deceived. And God will provide that wisdom and help us the more and more we get to know his word so that we're not deceived. But the devil's a liar. And some of the lies, and maybe these are lies that you have bought and you are believing, or you once did, is, for example... One of the lies of the devil is that you can work your way to God. This is a lie that our culture and the cultures all over all the world, so many, so many believe this, that in the various different ways, maybe the methods are different, but the ultimate uh, idea or the conclusion is, is that I can work my way to God. Somehow, in the scheme of things, the, the idea is, is that when I get to the end of my life, the good on this side is going to outweigh the bad. And I'm going to make it in. Because I'm basically a good person. And therefore, I've got a really good chance of making it. That's a lie that the devil has sowed into so many hearts through so many false religions. And like I said, it's doctored up in a lot of different ways, but it's still that same general premise. Another lie that the devil tells that sometimes we might even believe if we're not careful is is that God doesn't really care. God doesn't really care what's going on in your life. Look, he's got six billion people in this world to take care of. God isn't really interested in your little issues that you bring before him. So don't bother, because he doesn't care. My father, who doesn't know Christ, often will say when he reads, um, we have a thing called the grapevine at Fairhaven, where people can fill out prayer requests, and they're submitted in the evening. And people can see all of these different prayer requests that people pray for health, um, for general needs, and for the salvation of people who don't know Christ. And my dad, somehow, unfortunately, he gets hold of this. Because he, he'll, he can read these prayer requests that the saints are praying. And he really has a problem sometimes with some of the prayer requests. You know, you know pray that I can find employment or pray that God will heal me from this uh, illness that I've had. And, and all of these things that to him seems incredibly trivial. But sadly, the thing is, is he just doesn't understand that our God. Because First Peter tells us that God says he wants to cast all of our anxiety upon him, all our cares upon him. And he says the reason he wants us to do that is, is because God cares for us. Now, this is a world that we live in where we're becoming probably with the Internet age and the computer age less and less personal in some sense because we don't have to interact with for a computer. We can just type and read things. But to actually, uh, in our culture, have a, a re- relationships with people, this is a rare thing. This is something that is a privilege in the church of Jesus Christ, that we have this kind of fellowship and communion with one another. Because I'll tell you, in a lot of places in the world, they don't have this. They don't have this in this country where people come together and are genuinely concerned for one another. And the reason we are is because of something that God is doing in our lives. But we have a God today 
who we serve, for those of you who are here today know Jesus Christ, who cares. He cares about everything that you're going through. The unspoken that maybe no one here knows about. The things that are on your heart. The trials that you're going through. The devil would want to say, in effect, give up. Don't turn those things over. Don't cast those things over to Christ. Because he really doesn't care. That's what the argument was of what he tried to tell Adam and Eve. In a sense to say, you know what? God, if God really cared for you, if he was really thinking of your best interest in a sense, and he would let you have this tree to eat from as well. And we can be, we can be deceived and actually believe that lie. Another lie that the devil tells us is, is he tells us to live your life. Live your life as you please. Apart from God. It doesn't really matter. Live for the present. Really don't think about the future. Get everything you can and get it now as quick as you can. And yet the Bible teaches us, and this is a message that the devil doesn't want us to know, that if we live a life apart from God, if we don't come to know Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, the Bible is extremely clear that we will die in our sin. That's not a message that he wants you to hear. Another message he wants you to hear is that Jesus is a killjoy. This is something that when I talk to younger people in particular, it is something that they have heard and they struggle with. That if you become a Christian, all your fun is just going to disappear. Poof! Like a balloon popping. You receive Christ. You put your trust in Him. Good times are over. Now it's all going to be going to church and attending meetings and blah, blah, blah. I'll tell you what, nothing could be further from the truth. You know, when I listen to the events that are going on and I've watched some of the coverage on television and I've heard and read a lot of the different things over the last couple of years, just like you have as well, I cannot imagine, I cannot imagine what life would be like without Jesus Christ. I cannot imagine how I could go to bed at night and wake up in the morning with a sense of peace that we can have, not that we're... You know, we're just naive to the things going on and, and, and not concerned about the things going on in our world. We can bring them to the one who can deal with it. But he's not a killjoy. I listen to some of the things that people do when they call for help. Some of the things they've done on Friday and Saturday nights. And I'll tell you, if they could take it back, they would. If they could take it back. I see what the devil does in so many situations where... The people who took part in this had no idea, maybe, that it would turn out like this when they followed through. Those are some of the liars, lies of the devil. And if you're a believer this morning and, and in some way there's a foothold where he's been able to kind of get in a little bit and he's kind of, and you were to stop and think for a second, you know what, I think I've been deceived in this area or maybe this area, then reject that today. Reject that lie. And come back to Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And if you don't know Christ this morning, right now you're starting to think, you know what, maybe I have kind of bought into some of this, and I'm actually believing that. Well, the scripture says, Jesus is the one who tells the truth. And what he tells is the truth about the scriptures you really need to search out. Something else it says in John chapter 10 is that the thief 
comes only to steal and kill and destroy. You know, we're very conscious now in our culture of security. We're spending um, thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars for protection within our own uh, lower 48. Our budgets, uh, I don't know how we're going to cope, frankly, but that's not my concern. I'm not a budget analyst for some city or for the state. But I honestly don't quite know where all the money is coming from for all the things that our government, and we're grateful for it, are taking to protect us from the enemy. And we know that there's an enemy that we've heard a lot of, Al-Qaeda, and that if this terrorist regime, this terrorist group was to have their way, they would love to see every one of us destroyed. And we're very clear about that. And we're taking safeguards and measures to protect ourselves from them and others. But the Bible says the ultimate enemy of our soul is even greater. It's Satan. And he seeks to destroy you if he has that capability. Praise God. The scripture says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. But his method and his motive is he would like to destroy you. He would like to destroy if he could. If you're married today, he would love to see your marriage destroyed. He would love to do things and have ways and work in circumstances through wrong opportunities and poor judgments and wrong decisions and the weaknesses in ourselves. And he would like to uh, capitalize on all of that to destroy your home. He has no, no regard for you having a good home. He wants to see just the opposite. And if you're a Christian home today, all the more he wants to see the power of a Christian home destroyed. And so he's very conscious of that. If he can destroy leaders in a church, if he can bring them down through temptation, through the flesh and through the world, if he can do that, that's certainly a strategy of his. And really, ultimately, if you don't know Christ today, uh, he has no regard for you. He wants to destroy your life. In whatever way he can do it, through all the ways I've described, that's his goal, is to bring you down with him. And yet this is such a contrast because what we read of the scripture in John chapter 10 is that Jesus says, I came though that you might have life and might have it to the full. And he contrasts what this thief is like. Jesus came, a second reason that's very clearly outlined in scripture, the reason Jesus came was to rescue us from our enemy and to take away our sins. He not only came as John 1, and it's all tied together, but he came not only, it says in scripture, to destroy the works of the devil, but secondly, he says in John 1, 3, 5, 1 John 1, or sorry, 1 John 3, 5, but you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. He came to take away our sins. Now, this is something that Christians gather, and in, your, in our group we gather, we gather every Sunday to remember him, to break bread, to drink of the cup, because the sacrifice of what Jesus Christ did for us to take away our sins is so special that even though some people might think, why do you need to do it every week? Isn't this something you can just do once a month? Or once a quarter? Or why do you do this? Or why do you keep more or less saying sometimes some of the same things? But the reason is, is because we're incredibly grateful that Jesus Christ has taken away our sins. Amen. 
to think that my past, that unfortunately even the present or what sins I will commit in the future, the fact that Jesus Christ is not, he's taken them away, as it says in Scripture, because of his own blood that was shed. He's rescued us from my enemy. John chapter, Ephesians chapter 2, you don't need to turn to this, but just listen to the words of Paul. He says, as for you, talking about believers, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Past tense. In which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. It's a description of the devil. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. You know, I assume from what I'm hearing, if this is to be believed, and it's too early to say, but I've heard and I've seen some reports, if you've watched television over the last couple of days, that there are people who, in Iraq, who are grateful that they're being liberated. And you see the joy, I've seen just a couple clips on this, you see the joy in their face that they've been liberated, they believe they're going to be liberated from a dictator, from an evil, evil man and regime. Now, among us, it does us well. We, as Christians, have been liberated from the enemy of our souls. And maybe we didn't really fully understand what that captivity was like. One day, maybe we will. But every day we go on, I think we can draw an appreciation more and more for the fact that we've been set free from this devil and from all of his wicked works. And you and I, as Christians today, are experiencing freedom something we didn't know when we were under the captivity of the devil. And I hope, and I see some young people here today, I hope that you have discovered being released from the bondage of the devil. I hope you receive that at an early stage, early uh, stage in your life. That's one of the things I hear from people who become Christians when they're in their 40s and 50s, 60s, 70s. They, their, only, their only regret in one sense is that they wish it had been sooner in one sense. But God is sovereign and he knows all these things, but they just wish it had been even sooner because it was a wicked way to live and it really wasn't a life that the devil promised it would be. Another reason Jesus says that he came right from this very text of Scripture is he came to give us abundant life. John chapter 11, if you want to just flip over one more page. Verse 25, Jesus is talking to Martha. He's comforting her in relationship to Lazarus' death. And we know the wonderful outcome of that story. But he says to her in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in, in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? This is a, a wonderful life. That even though you die, the Bible says you will live. He came to give us life, not only life in the future, but life on this earth. That's abundant. That's a life of purpose. That's a life of meaning. It's a life that understands in the big picture, because God has revealed this to us by His Spirit, really what's taking place. 
and even in the world events today, we understand that the Bible says that there must be wars and rumors of wars. And this is all a foretelling of his coming. And we can understand these things. It's marvelous. People are walking around, running around, and they're fretting, and they don't understand this. They don't understand the things that are happening, but we do because we've got the Spirit of God. We understand and we have an outlook on life that God has given us that so many can't. They're just living for the moment, and they're struggling through that. But by the grace of God, he's changed us. I promised you as, as we were closing, how do you spell this word life? And it's all very wrapped up in this. And if I had a way to show this to you, it'd be a little bit more clear. But I want to tell you that there is one way to spell the word life. Maybe you're living it like this today, and it's small l, large i, small f, and small e. And if you were paying attention there, what you understood was is life is really about three people. Me, myself, and I, exactly. It's all about me. Life is the way I want to live it. We want to be able to sing along with Frank Sinatra that I did it my way. Really, the key word for this, the person that's living life like this right now is a life of selfishness, where self is on the throne. Self is what rules. And what myself wants, what I want, like a little child, we still sometimes live like that even as we're adults. It's what I want. It's what I want out of life. Some people also live life the second way. Small L, capital I, capital F, and a small E. Life is really all about an if. Life is very conditional. Life is good if you're healthy, if you're happy, if you're prosperous. Life would be better, I hear people say, if only I had this. If only I had a wife. If only I had a husband or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or more money or a better car, better job. Didn't have to travel so much. Never hear anybody say travel less. But basically, it's all kind of in the context of discontentment. Life has kind of given people a, a hard deal. And they view it that I'm discontent. And if these things could change or if these, these things would go away, it would be better. Some people are living life the third way. They're living it capital L, capital I, small f, capital E. Life, if they were really to be honest, is kind of a lie. How's it going? You know, somebody might say to you, and the answer would be pretty good, great. But the truth of the matter, it isn't. You project something about yourself. You project yourself in some way about how you are, but you really aren't. Maybe it's secure, assured, confident. Maybe you come across that you're on top of the world, but inside you've got a lot of fears. You've got a lot of concerns. There's a lot of things in the heart that are tugging at you. But you're living a lie in the sense that you're not going to let anybody see that. Maybe you know some people like that. It's an act. It's an act. And really, you don't need somebody to tell you this, or you wouldn't necessarily need to tell this person this. 
But if they were really being truthful, they would say basically they're just a hypocrite. And then, of course, there's a last way to spell life, and I think you know what that is already. Capital L, capital I, capital F, capital E. And it's the life that Jesus came to give. He said, I came that you might have life. It's not a life without struggles, as this song that we sang in the beginning brought out. It's not a life without difficulties and trials. But it's a life that knows that we can go on singing until that day that Jesus Christ appears for us. Rapidly closing here, how did Jesus Christ accomplish this? This is something you can be sharing over the next few weeks with Easter and any other time for that matter. John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. You know, I think unless you're totally callous, and I don't think any of us are here this morning, but when you hear, and we're going to be hearing over the days and weeks ahead, of men and women who have just as a, as a soldier, have sacrificed their life. And you, we're going to hear stories from family members, and it's, it's probably uh, going to tug at our heart. It's hard to hear. And it's sad, and it's, and it's something yet you feel a sense of uh, pride in people that would be willing to do that. I sure do. And I think of police officers that I work for and I want to help serve, as well as firefighters that I help to dispatch for who are willing to put themselves into danger to help others, sometimes who are totally ungrateful and aren't caring about it, but yet nonetheless less willing to do that. I feel incredibly proud just to know and, and associate with those kind of people. Amen. And yet Jesus Christ, the greatest, greatest act in one act, he left heaven, became a man, lowered himself, humbled himself in ways that you and I can't really even totally take in by becoming a man, We might think it's the greatest thing in the world, but he became a man. He became one of us, and he went to the cross. And he laid down his life. He didn't tell somebody else to lay it down. It was somebody else. He was the only one that was fit and that was unique and who was sinless, who could lay his own life down for his enemies, the Scripture tells us in Romans chapter 5. And so this morning, if you're in a situation where you have not in a sense, done anything about that, you might say, well, what am I to do? What am I to do with what you're telling me? The Bible says in John chapter 1 where Jesus, where they're speaking about Jesus in John chapter 1 verse 12, it says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Revelation 3.20, which is such a wonderful analogy of this truth. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and will dine with him and he with me. Receiving Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, acknowledging your need for him with a desire to turn away from your sin, with a desire to say that you want to reject the lies of the devil, the works of the devil that he has been able to have in your life, the grip that he's had, you want to turn away from him and you want to turn and receive Christ. And if if it's not obvious, when should I receive Christ? Well, we've talked about this before when I spoke, but there are two characters in Scripture. A couple of men you probably won't remember, but those of you who know Christ and know these stories well. But remember Bartimaeus and Zacchaeus. 
It says in both examples of those fellows that Jesus Christ was passing through. And he never came through Jericho again in those two encounters. That was their opportunity. And the scripture implores, pleads, begs, which is something that we ought to do as well to those we talk to, that the invitation is to be accepted now, not to be delayed. Isaiah 55 in the Old Testament says, Today is the day of salvation. Jesus Christ said, I came that you might have life and have it to the full. If you know Jesus today, just think again, and this will, I think, result in praise and adoration and a a sweet aroma going right up to God the Father. As you think about this today, what would life be without Christ? What would your life be like as you go home for your lunch or go home for that Sunday afternoon nap or just before you start to fall asleep if you're to think, what would it be like if I didn't know Christ, if he had never come, if he had not come to give me life? And then as you think about that, turn that around and just thank him afresh. Worship him anew and say that your desire again this coming week, even if last week didn't go so great, and you realize, you know what, I really didn't walk as close to the Lord as I, as I really could have. My intimacy with him really wasn't what it, it could have been. But to commit yourself afresh this week, if you know him, to say, I want to walk afresh with you again this week, and I want to live for you. I want to embrace you, and I want to embrace your cause. And I want to be open to however you want to lead in opportunities to share you with others. Jesus Christ came to us, and if you do not know him, I'm going to ask you this simple question. Will you now come to him? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you very, very much that you are someone who tells us the truth. With you, we don't ever have to worry that we're being lied to or deceived or you're you're spinning something here, Lord, that isn't ultimately and only the truth. Lord, we want to thank you for that wonderful verse of Scripture in John 10, that you came that we might have life and have it to the full. Our God, today we're grateful that we have everlasting life. We thank you that we have forgiveness of sins. We thank you that we have a joy that we can have in this journey here on this earth because of you, Lord. Pray, Lord, for any of our family members, any of our friends and those we work with who do not know you, that, Lord, even this coming Easter as it's approaching in a few weeks' time, that, Lord, will just declare you as the resurrection and the life and that people might even come to know you. Thank you again for our time this morning. Pray your encouragement, Lord, even this day. In Jesus' name, amen.